Hello and welcome to the Bad Take. Uh, this is Himal and this is Tamara. Uh, so today we have a special guest with us, all the way from Spain. Yeah, <laughs> she knows Spain. Uh, so I will let Carmen introduce herself. Okay, so my name is Carmen. Uh, I come from Spain, from the University of Granada. So I've been uh, connected to Sri Lanka for many years. Uh, first at the personal level, now at the professional level. So I've been spending the last six months of my life here in Colombo. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, Carmen is into she's studying linguistics and specifically things like extreme speech, hate speech, hate speech, and that kind of stuff. So, can you give us a little background about uh, wha- what you study and what why you are interested in these topics? Well, I'm a linguist by profession, yeah. so um, I'm very interested in language right. in all the possible uh, senses of language. And uh, I've been studying language at a more formal level, let's say at the level of uh, combination words, syntax, and that kind of um, that kind of aspects. But after that, I decided to go beyond that and move towards discourse. I'm really interested in the way that people interact online because of Mm -hmm. the specific features that uh, communication online has. And uh, I decided to study as a global topic, uh, extreme speech, how people um, can use uh, language in an extreme way online. Um, that got different ramifications. One of them goes, uh, for instance, the study of Sri Lanka in the sense of uh, the ethnic conflict, pre-war communication, and uh, post-war communication in the province. The construction of identity, how speakers construct identity, how speakers construct reality through their discourse. Also, cyber Islamophobia is a topic that interests me uh, in a global sense, not restricted to Sri Lanka, but unfortunately connected to Sri Lanka lately. Far right is something also I've been studying. And also I've been studying ISIS. So I'm working on a project in which we we study basically how ISIS interact with people so that they can recruit it. So let's say it's a combination of propaganda, uh, recruitment, and uh, all these uh, all these aspects that ISIS used to get followers for their course. Yeah. I'm interested in language in general, so that means I'm inter- that I study work words, but also images. So any images. Kind, images, images. So I analyze images using linguistic patterns and using linguistic models uh, as a way of communication. The grammar, let's say, visual grammar, is that I'm interested in. And because all these topics are a little bit, uh, can, uh, can actually affect the researcher somehow when you're exposed to this mm. kind of uh, yeah. problems, social problems on a daily basis, uh, I decided to have a break from that, let's say, drama, linguistic drama, and I studied graffiti. Graffiti. I've been uh, studying graffiti uh, in Granada especially because it's a city which is full of the, all the worlds, all the worlds in the city can be read. There are a lot of messages, so I was deci- I decided to study graffiti also in Granada. Mm. What sort of graffiti is this? Like, wh- what are any interesting themes you are seeing? Yes, that was a f- absolutely a fascinating topic to right. me. Uh, actually, um, I started my interest in graffiti came from uh, as a mayor working in the city because uh, Granada is a very walkable city, so you can walk everywhere. Right. And I, as a linguist, also I was just always paying attention to the kind of messages I was seeing written on the walls. So I decided to take pictures of all, uh, of all these messages, and I collected a corpus of more than 400. 
mm. messages. The definitions about graffiti are very problematic, okay. but um, I'm interested in graffitis uh, thinking about that as written messages that may or may not be with a company with a certain images, but not on street art. Street art, so for instance, what you have now in Sri Lanka, all these mm. murals, yeah. this is a different thing. Also interesting, but this is a different thing, right? So if you have just a painting or artistic representation without any written message, it's not something I'm going to study. Right. Yeah? Okay. So my corpus is, it, it should contain a, a word at least. And also I'm focusing on the graffitis I found outdoors. That means I discard those, uh, those which are included, for instance, like you can find in the university, in the toilets, mm. in the university desks. Basically because of a methodological problem. Because what happens with the kind of graffiti is that usually is a kind of conversation. Most of them, someone just read, uh, write a message and someone else replies. That is a kind of conversation uh, or dialogue, mm. and that requires a different methodology. So that's basically it. So when I studied, when I compiled the corpus in graffiti of graffiti in Granada, I found wonderful findings. So I um, established or created a taxonomy based on the content of the messages. Mm. So as far as I remember, there were six groups. One were feminist graffitis, others were anti-capitalist graffitis, anti-establishment, Spain is a country in which anarchy movements are very, very strong. <laughs> we are not very good, like, obeying people. So there are a lot of anarchy sentiments there. Anti-consumerist uh, graffitis, anti-religious graffitis, basically uh, addressed to the Catholic Church. Right. Uh, Pro-animal rights, that was another group. And uh, philosophical, poetical, let's say, miscellaneous graffitis, but mm. most of them were reflections about the world, life, human beings. So who are these artists? Where do they come from? You know, you don't know. That's the thing. That's why I'm interested in graffitis, like right. in, in relation, I mean, in opposition to street art. Right. Because graffiti per se is the expression, it should be clandestine by nature, mm. it's against the law, it's an illicit way of communication. Mm. So obviously it is not signed, it's not tagged, as graffiters call that tag, it is not tagged because obviously it's against the authorities, against the law. Nobody takes credit, not even like an anonymous group or anything. I, I found something that we call the locutor. Locutor in graffitis is not your signature, but sometimes there is a symbol as if you were the author, but nobody knows who the author is. In my corpus I found a jester. Jester was in uh, some of the graffitis. Um, it was a stencil technique, so you can see the jester. Yeah. And uh, all, all the graffitis in which the jester appear were political oriented, anti-capitalist anti or anti-establishment or right. um, anti-consumerist graffitis. But nobody knows where the others are. Yeah. I mean, obviously you, cannot, I mean, you can find, for instance, the anarchy symbol or the feminist symbol mm. in some of them. But still, you don't know who is behind. Most of the time, because I found the graffitis in the mornings, the previous day they were not there. So that means that they made it at night. And they take public spaces in the city. And the graffitis I took, most of them are in downtown. So sometimes, uh, for, the, for instance, the Faculty of Political Science in Granada has a lot of graffitis. So obviously this is, I mean, if they catch you doing these kind of things, you will be fined. Mm. And I mean, that's also the kind of uh, illicit birth of this kind of communication. It is essential to the nature of the message. Right. So um, a basic thing is that you don't know who you are. I mean, you, d you cannot show, you cannot mm. uh, reveal your identity. It's essential. Do you think that the fact that it is illegal, does that make people 
uh, care for it mo or, or, or think about it mo you mean the authors or the audience the audience the audience yes i mean uh, obviously because it's illegal yeah. uh, it depends <laughs> with, with right. the kind of the audience you are uh, you can f- you can feel empathy for the message itself if you are of the you are uh, the owner mm. of the house and we take a free design painting <laughs> on obviously yeah. you are totally against it yeah. i've seen that too right. i think to be completely honest it, that graffitis are so integrated in uh, daily life in the west you have been visiting many uh, European capitals and cities um, and taking pictures of whenever I find a graffiti of mm. these kind of, of messages. It's, it's, part of, it's part of the urban furniture, let's say, right. of urban yeah. landscape, yeah. such as lampposts or benches or trees. You kind of use it. However, I have to tell you that uh, I've seen and actually also feel that kind of negative reaction when you find graffitis mm. written messages, the kind of messages, for instance, written on the facade of the cathedral or in the very important monuments, right? So people's reactions are really, really bad. And I think that actually the communicative point, the communicative uh, goal of this kind of graffiti is totally lost because people focus more on the vandalic act mm. than in the message itself. So, I mean, the point, the goal was totally lost in that sense. It's not very intelligent. If I was a graffiti and want to uh, raise my voice through this kind of illegal activity, taking illegal use of uh, public spaces, definitely that's not a good idea. Nobody focus on what you're saying. Focus on what you did. Do we know why we don't <coughs> have like a graffiti? Why we don't have a lot of graffiti in Sri Lanka? I I, I don't think I've ever seen. There, there's a few. I've seen I've, I've seen a few on like Marine Drive and. Hmm. Right, but very concentrated, very small. Yeah, we don't have a we don't really have a no. culture of no. graffiti yeah. in this country. You yeah. don't. That's the thing. I've I've taken some pictures here too. Right. Uh, for instance, I've taken pictures of stencil technique. For instance, mm. you can see some of them with the JVP uh, leaders. Yes, yeah. I yeah. found yeah. some of them, political graffiti in that sense, but not not many, not many. There is no culture. There is, mm. is no culture that actually in Europe, uh, if you compare two United States tradition of graffiti, st- there are two different traditions. Mm. So I mean, uh, how are they different? Uh, in US, at least at the beginning, the the origin of graffiti in US was the associated with the ghetto, um, marginalized voices very very mm. close to hip-hop rap culture mm. right in europe the tradition of graffiti was associated to uh, may 68 so th- it's a political graffiti it's, mar- it's much more focused on macro political approach right and the kind of of messages and the content is going to be uh, totally different from the from the u.s graffiti we have some hip-hop influenced graffiti i think uh, the b-boy communities uh, from Maligawat, you know, like, mm. the, the, like little groups of boys who break dance. Uh. Like they used to carry spray cans and, you know, paint, uh-huh. make graffiti on walls in Colombo. Like, the, I mean, that can be considered, I don't know, it might be problematic, like, you know, the ghetto. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in a way there, I mean, even though it is kind of different, um, but uh, the graffiti probably copied from the, yeah. the uh, American tradition, North American This has been tradition. happening for a few years, though. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's the same that it happened in Spain, too. I mean, right. the, what is now called street art yeah. started like this, right. uh, copying directly from the influence was right. US, right? And it's about that also, is like giving voice to this um, bonding somehow, giving voice to these uh, mm. voices in marginalized communities mm. and uh, 
this kind of ghetto culture. Right. So, so what what is, what is your goal with studying graffiti? Is it like purely out of interest, or do you? Well, <laughs> I don't know what age I'm going to get out of this because academics um, never get out of anything. <laughs> anything is just a very reduced audience who is interested in what we do. But is to be completely honest, I mean, I wrote an article on the conversation yeah. in Spain. Right. Um, it's written in Spanish. It's about graffiti. Um, it cannot be more than 800 words. And I just wrote it like a small summary and, you know. And it became like the most read uh, <laughs> article in the history of the University of Granada. So now, right now it has like more than 11,000 reads, right. which is <laughs> huge. Huh. So I was thinking, oh, people are really interested in graffitis, no? Or it's a topic that everybody gets to know more about or probably because it is very part of their daily lives. So I was the first one who was like totally shocked mm. by that. And when you, you never know what the audience wants and what the, what the audience actually demands in that sense. But uh, I studied basically graffiti out of my interest. So it's a, right. you can call it academic selfishness or <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I was interested. Basically, this is what I always do. I'm, if I'm really interested in a topic, I am so lucky that uh, my work allows me to uh, study and spend time studying what I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so in, as I told you, as a citizen who walks the city every day, I was really thinking that speakers and citizens were very creative. And the kind of messages I found, some of them are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. So I thought this should be studied. This, this deserves much, getting more, much more in the topic. and. Uh, at least put a bit of order what people are complaining about, what are the interests of people, yeah. what is interesting to them. And that's why I studied graffiti. I'm going to continue, probably right. the corpus will enlarge. I'm interested, for instance, in seeing how the places in which graffitis are found became a powerful communicative force. Because some of them, for instance, are located in very specific places. Anti-Catholic graffitis were located near the cathedrals, mm. near the churches. So that means that you select the audience somehow. Mm. Um, Anti-establishment graffiti is too. Anti-capitalist graffiti is you can find in the main, in the facades of the main shops in Granada, or the most uh, uh, famous uh, shops. So there is something to say about also the public spaces. So and how do you select the audience? Right. So that kind of things also interest me. So let's see. We'll continue with this. Right. So Carmen, as, as an academic who has been studying graffiti, wha what has been your impression of uh, the rise in wall art slash murals in Sri Lanka? It's interesting uh, movement to me. I've been taking a lot of pictures. Mm. But uh, I cannot give you an opinion on this right now because I need more data. Okay. I need, uh, obviously, I have seen some patterns repeated. So I've, I've seen, for instance, the, the claiming or the representation of the uh, Buddhist singleist yeah. uh, elements and mm. uh, main uh, symbols mm. uh, represented in the murals, most of them. Uh, I've seen word, uh, words such as motherland repeated frequently. But still, um, my corpus should be bigger mm -hmm. than, than it is to draw, uh, let's say, reliable uh, conclusions. Mm -hmm. So. Also, super interesting to me, or very, very of, of my interest, is the aspect of who is behind these murals, in the sense of, I mean, not the artist per se. Right. Uh, who is, is it commission work? Who is paying for this? Who is providing the materials? These kind of things are of my interest. I don't have that information for the moment, so I've been uh, witnessing all this um, amount of new murals around Sri Lanka in many parts, uh, well, actually all around the island. 
um, I really like aesthetically. I really like um, the colors and what uh, the, the amount of life that uh, that this kind of artistic manifestations are bringing into the city. Um, I've been noticing several patterns, several recurring topics, but uh, it's too early for me. I don't have enough data to, to draw conclusions on what kind of, of messages, of what kind of discourse these murals are implementing. So um, it's too early for me. I don't have uh, reliable data. And uh, especially, I don't have enough data to, to draw patterns and to draw conclusions on these. We don't know how much of it is organic and how much of it is, uh, you know, commissioned pieces. I don't know. Uh, me, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know if someone knows. Mm. Yesterday, someone was uh, in a conversation was telling me that she has the impression that uh, this started like a natural, let's mm. say, spontaneous yeah. movement, mm. and yeah. somehow it became organized later. Right. right. Um, to be honest, I have no data on this, so yeah. um, I cannot tell you how. The what was the origin of this? Because that was happening simultaneously somehow yeah. uh, in many parts of the different parts of the country. So it is also mm, it's also a very interesting movement because being, for instance, imagine Jaffna and imagine Borella mm. or Colombo, um, so separated in distance. So, but this was happening. This is a kind of phenomenon that was mm. happening simultaneously in both uh, places. So um, it would be interesting to compare. Once like this movement has been settled down and you got enough data, it would be very interesting to see what kind of messages, what kind of representations are happening in the north, in the east, in the central province, the south. That would be interesting to see. And, but when you got enough data, you can draw conclusions so far. For me, for me at least, it's not enough. Let's move on to another area of interest of yours. Uh, you mentioned extreme speech mm -hmm. and uh, the very first episode we did of this podcast <laughs> yes, yes, touched, yes. touched a little bit upon uh, hate speech. <coughs> One thing I remember is that we could not agree on you know, how we define hate speech. <laughs> yeah. And we were taught, like going back and forth about how it depends on the person yes. and all that. So, like, how 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 do we know it is hate hate speech? Is there a definition that we can all agree on? How how does that work? No, there is no definition. Right. <laughs> this is one of the problems. One of the problems is that, well, I I don't like the term hate speech. I've been right. using previously in my work because it was the best one I could find till the moment. But uh, within the so-called hate speech, which is a kind of umbrella term that everybody uses, right nowadays. Uh, you will find different models. Uh, you will find dangerous speech, you will find cyber aggression, you will find extreme speech, different models. Um, when it came to, uh, to know this model, extreme speech, I thought that it was much more, uh, it was feeding more, much more my interest and the way I was uh, perceiving language and that kind of phenomenon, mm -hmm. especially because it's much more performative and takes into account the context. Imagine, for instance, to give you an example. So if you, ca you find or detect potential extreme speech here in Sri Lanka, it's not the same as if I do in Spain. That is the context, the historical social context of the, the in which speech is created is, is really relevant. Even though the model was um, created by ethnographers, that is no linguist, mm. um, but I, I love that, that approach and uh, also that is theoretical and methodological, so I like that. But it's true that whether you call it hate speech, whether you call it extreme speech, whether you call it dangerous speech, it's difficult to detect in the sense of um, what is the definition? 
that includes it. Um, usually I work with a working definition provided by uh, legal institutions. This is the only, right. let's say, more neutral, mm. uh, more neutral definition I can take as a departure point for my studies. However, what I'm interested in uh, as a linguist is the linguistic realizations of uh, stream of speech. So, uh, I mean, everybody would, for everybody it's very easy to detect that if I call someone cockroach, this is an insult, this is denigrating, this is humiliating, because I'm comparing someone with an insect. But this is what Trump did, or Rwanda. Yeah, Rwanda was one of the typical yeah. cases in which you will always find uh, this kind of a speech. For me, this is interesting, but uh, not so much for many reasons. Mm. One, because I was discussing with a friend that this kind of assumptions, like calling someone an insect, calling someone an animal, mm. it is denigrating. Well, it depends. If you take a humanist approach, if you take a post-humanist approach, it is not. <laughs> you know, why is a cockroach less than a human being? Why is this an insult? You know, it depends on your perspective. That is yeah. one point. This is the, the kind of things academics do, right? <laughs> That's one thing. A different thing is um, we are talking about language using language. So that complicates things <laughs> a lot. You cannot separate the object from, from the, the object of a study from the, the means of a study. No, you're studying language using language. That makes things more complicated. I'm much more interested in other subtle aspects. That is, you can see a storm coming, but uh, if you go pouring rain, at the end, both in both situations, you are wet, you are soaked. But it's a different way. So basically, I'm interested in the more subtle ways of, of extreme speech. Uh, so that's why I pay attention to rhetorical figures or rhetoric strategies or um, what we call in uh, linguistics collocations, semantics associations. I pay attention to the verbs. So I look at this kind of a small thing mm. that for the average citizen are difficult to detect because obviously nobody has the time to stop and think about these small nuances, but they configurate the discourse in such a way that they get into you without you noticing. And um, at the end of the day, it is so much has permeated into you in, in a way that you assume it as natural. I'm much more interested in this. Right. So have you been studying Sri Lanka as well? In as terms of uh, extreme speech. Extreme speech. Yes. Actually, um, I presented uh, my work on uh, Digana uh, right. and uh, Digana and uh, Ampara. Uh, to Ampara. The, yes. Yeah. In 2018, <laughs> in a conference, mm. Cobra Archive and Performance, um, Cobra Archive and Performance Conference that was the uh, hosted by University of Colombo in November. So I presented that. It was based on uh, videos on YouTube, but not the content of the videos, but the reaction of the commenters on the videos. Okay. Super interesting. Uh, what kind material. of videos? Um, the videos were, uh, first of all, the language was English, mm. so international media. That is positive and negative in the sense that obviously you're going to find more extreme speech in singular or in Tamil. There's yeah. a vernacular language of any country. Okay. Uh, but if the videos were in English, that means a lot of external commenters could uh, also take part in this. So it's yeah. a kind of different data, yeah? Um, the videos I, com I selected were uh, on um, international media reporting what was happened. So for instance, interview to the, some monks, or just, just giving information, describing, narrating what has happened. So mm. correspondence that came, mm. came here those days. Yeah. And the data were very interesting to me. The data were very interesting to me because you could see also um, 
stereotypes brought into Sri Lanka, external stereotypes. So you could right. see, you could see, for instance, um, stereotypically Islamophobic comments and pro-defenders of Buddhism from external, so you can understand. Because it's very funny when the, someone from Sri Lanka comments, make a comment on these videos, first sentence is always, I am from Sri Lanka. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's very easy to distinguish the, the speakers. Yeah. And you know what is this is super interesting from a linguistic point of view, because saying I'm from Sri Lanka, it is a way of legitimizing your discourse, yeah. meaning I know what mm. is happening here. Right. You have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting to me. So you got these uh, general stereotypes, and then you can find several commenters from Sri Lanka uh, giving different perspectives on, on the Buddhist mm. that uh, carried out the actions, or different perspectives on the Muslims also. Um, those same videos, after the Easter attack, got a lot of new comments mm. one year after, saying, like, uh, basically stating that, look what happened, so the Buddhist monks were right. It is the Muslims. They are like mixing two different situations, completely different situations. One is internal, what is happening in Sri Lanka, whatever it is, it's something which is national. Mm. Then what happened with the Easter attacks was totally different. Happened in Sri Lanka too, perpetrated by Sri Lankans, but it's a totally different story. It has nothing to do with the Buddhist and Muslim clash. It's a different thing. But speakers came to find and give legitimation of what happened to Digana and Ampara district just because of the Easter attack. So to me, it was really, really interesting to see this, this kind of comments. Were they in English, the comments? Or in yes, yeah. all of them. Right. All of them. You can find a lot of stream speech. You can find a lot of stream speech. Whenever you deal with Islamophobia, tropes are similar. In Sri Lanka, there is a slight exception. This is something different, but most of them are. Have you taken a look at Facebook comments and uh, the comments that sometimes you see on memes and things like that? Yeah, memes have been studying memes, not Sri Lanka memes. I've been studying Islamophobic memes. Okay. Um, and I published things right. on these because that's, an, that's a kind of different thing is how humor in popular culture can be a vehicle. That's, that's what I say. I'm also interested can be a vehicle for mm. stream speech. Right. Which is also very dangerous because elements of popular culture, you can take memes, but you can take movies, you can take video games, for instance, which is an area in which you can find a lot of extreme speech. But because of the elements of popular culture, it's easier to be unnoticeable. <laughs> the kind of extreme speech is easier to pass unnoticed. I'm interested in how this could be actually harmful for particular groups. There are plenty of video games on uh, with uh, Islamophobic discourse, for instance. Now, with uh, regard to Sri Lanka, the uh, the, uh, the supposed involvement of ISIS in the mm. Easter attacks. How how did that complicate the Islamophobic narrative? That is, oh pfft, yes. <laughs> in one of the pieces I wrote, actually, that was my point: is that uh, letting aside the victims, the mortal victims, that they are mortal victims period, no distinction, they are human beings mm. uh, killed by them. But as a community, Muslims are the <laughs> main victims of ISIS. Because they unleash Islamophobia, everybody is just uh, waiting for a trigger just mm. to focus on them. And yeah. So actually, ISIS complicated the things a lot for uh, Muslims in Sri Lanka, in the sense that uh, everybody looked suspiciously at them. Everybody was potentially suspicious, if you are a Muslim. Mm. Definitely ISIS, not only here in any part of the world, uh, whenever they make that kind of uh, terrorist attacks. Mm. So Muslim community suffers a lot of consequences of these uh, attacks by civil society, by the members of society. 
So mm, in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka was not an exception on this. Has there been a decrease in uh, the Islamophobic rhetoric over the f- last few months? I cannot give you an answer to that because um, probably some Muslim organizations have the number. These are the ones who are monitoring these kind of small attacks, mm-hmm. vandalization of uh, mosques or shrines. Or, um, I can talk about the discourse. About Sri Lanka, yes. I mean, uh, because... <laughs> the, the, after the Easter attack and after all the months and all the grief and all the mourning, then it came the elections. So people focus on the elections. So right, they, yeah. they forgot about that. Mm. In the rest of the world, same continue. The situation is the same. One thing, maybe I'm wrong, but one thing that I've noticed is that there has been a sort of resurgence of alt-right rhetoric. A lot of countries, there have been parties and, and movements and groups of people who sort of subscribe to these alt-right ideas and ideology so is that is that a fair characterization is that something that has that you have seen what do you mean it's like uh, in many countries of the world there like for example i knew that uh, maybe six seven years ago in france the the the, the, the front right. Nas- front, yeah the front national for example oh. that was the only only party that i knew about but then in uh, in india yeah and then in other countries in europe uh, in in spain also i forget the name of the party vox. vox yes exactly so like i see these things popping up and is that uh, do we know in terms of uh, you know as a as a linguist as a person who studies language what kind of language are they using that people are so interested in this and ah yeah yeah definitely definitely um I'm a member of uh, a senior fellow at the Center of the Analysis of the Radical Right. Right. So I have to write uh, every month, <laughs> basically <laughs> about that topic one, the blog post, and um, been analyzing this kind of uh, of discourse. Definitely, is totally there is a this totally big connection between Islamophobia and uh, far right. Yeah. Um, talking about uh, Europe in the in those terms, but you can extrapolate the same situation to many parts of the world because mm. we're talking here about populism, far-right populism. Yeah. The unstable situation in Europe at all levels, especially economically, and uh, that brought up uh, as a consequence um, the unstable political situation. Mm. It is the perfect habitat, the perfect landscape for these groups to emerge. Um, it has happened in France for years with yeah. Marine Le Pen, and yeah. um, then you got Italy with Salvini, you got the Netherlands. Uh, Germany has a lot of problems with the far-right groups. Neo-Nazis are groups. Scandinavian countries too. Hungary with Viktor Orban, so I mean, also got a big problems. So it's, it's, it's a kind of pattern which is repeated all, all around Europe. Spain was an exception to this landscape till the year 2013. Mm. Mm. In our particular case, the problem that made the birth of the far right and the consolidation, the birth and consolidation of the far right was the problem with Catalonia independence. But it's always the same. It's always the same pattern that you can find. It's like uh, whenever Ruth Bader, Professor Ruth Bader called that the politics of fear and the arrogance of ignorance. That means that basically populist discourse is based on that. She has been mm. studying um, the far-right uh, discourse in Austria for decades. So this is one of the pillars uh, of their discourse, uh, the basic pillars of their discourse. So basically saying that if we don't do anything and something we take serious measures on that, mm. the unity of the nation, the nation itself is going to disintegrate. 
in our case, the threat that the separatist movement, independent mus um, uh, movement in Catalonia was just about uh, Spanish uh, political society and landscape was actually um, the big threat that uh, Vox used as, a, as the main basis of their birth. And actually, they, um, they were the ones who sued and took to court, took to court the uh, Catalan politicians. Islamophobia is part of their discourse, mm. not only of Vox, but of any far-right yeah. political party. That is the fourth, like, let's say, um, a foreign threat. What happens is that they talk about immigration, but immigration, we know that uh, most of them are Muslims in religion, so it's not about, sometimes it's difficult to see what kind of, 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 of phenomenon we are talking about. Is it xenophobia? Is actually hate to the different, hate to the immigrant? Or is it actually per se Islamophobia? Is hate and irrational hostility towards Muslims? In my data in previous studies, we talk about United States is clearly against the Muslims. But in Europe, sometimes it's difficult. If you look at the data from England, they are always, compa they are always complaining that they are using my taxes to build a new mosque. So I'm paying all my taxes, and they get new schools, or they are teaching Islamic subjects in schools. So I wonder, would be the same if that is, for instance, the Jews were in the case instead of Muslims? We don't have the data, so we cannot compare. In case of Spain, it's a different tool because of historical reasons. So Vox, for instance, talks about the new Reconquista, Reconquest, which is actually when the Catholic kings expelled the, Mus expelled the Muslims. Right. So they are using a kind of semiotic uh, symbols to build up their own identity and their own discourse. But definitely the far right in Europe, which is uh, unfortunately an emerging phenomenon, has to do a lot of things, is very, very closely linked to Islamophobia. So as, uh, as linguists, can you guys like study discourse and make certain predictions about uh, political outcomes? We can do. We need the help of <laughs> probably computer professors who help right. us to... We can give the data and they mm. can design algorithms that they can predict. So this is basically what we are doing in our project with ISIS. So is, uh, are your studies limited to the far right, or do you do you look at language used by, say, the left or liberals? Or mm, in my case, I study the far right. Okay. But yeah, there are other people who are studying, for instance, Podemos, who is the right. far left right. political party in Spain. Right. And there are others who are doing this. Right. right. Uh, in the in that institute, in that center, we have scholars from different parts of the world, mm. including South America with Bolsonaro in Brazil, mm. obviously Trump, other South American countries too. Uh, we are just focusing on the far-right movements, including right. a lot of new other aspects such as white supremacy, Islamophobia, so there are a lot of mm. environmental policy because mm. it's also very close to far-right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, different aspects, different uh, perspectives, different uh, specialists focus on different aspect, but we are focusing on the far right. But other people, other scholars, just focus mm. on the far left. So for instance, Venezuela, Maduro, and all this, uh, Cuba, or Spanish Podemos would be examples of this. Yeah. Okay, you, you, studied, you used to study ISIS as well, hmm. right? Uh, so one thing that I saw with ISIS was that they are so effective in the communication that they do. Like for example, if you read Dabik, like the way that's what we analyze. This yeah, is what I analyze. The way that Sudabik so is the the magazine of, of ISIS, right? And the way that it is put together, the layout, the writing is so professional, so well done. And I suppose that, that has some effect on, you know, people who can be inclined to follow their 
following their footsteps right hmm. so have you ha- seen anything interesting in the way that they communicate uh, that people should be you know uh, mindful about be careful about hmm. uh, yeah i mean i have seen uh, <laughs> a lot of fascinating things about uh, the way isis communicate hmm. isis uh, public relations and marketing strategies and the way the cu- communication offices are absolutely amazing hmm. and uh, they know it and they know the power of it and as you said they have two um, propaganda yeah. magazines David and Rumia leader now they have stopped usually uh, you will find uh, after a crisis in ISIS you will find that they stop writing that doesn't mean that ISIS has disappeared when they feel stronger when they feel more empowered then you will find more frequent publications mm. right of them It is fascinating. The, the, the propaganda journals of ISIS are absolutely fascinating. Um, as you said, who is behind that? The mastermind behind that? The language, yeah. the rhetoric, the discourse, the layout, the design. Yeah. It is something to study. It's it really, really worth studying. Actually, there are plenty of literature written on this. In, my, in the project, I'm in charge of analyzing the photographers. So uh, the visual images, um, the visual content of ISIS uh, in those propaganda magazines. I mean, fascinating stuff. Especially because you can see uh, the way they construct, the way they polarize discourse between enem- enemies and heroes. Even though there are plenty of studies on how they portray the enemy, for me it's much more interesting what do you offer to engage people and to make it attractive so that people can join uh, ISIS. And... Um, You can find, for instance, a big tendency to emphasize the brotherhood and the kind of family that ISIS fighters can offer someone else. This is important and really relevant because um, just talking about uh, Spanish data in 2017, uh, as far as I remember, it was 2017, 92 uh, Spaniards, Spanish citizens, were caught in the Barcelona, the airport of Barcelona, by the police when they were going to try to fly to Syria, to mm. d- Turkey, Turkey is f- the first stop, to join ISIS later in Syria. Their profile, the sociological profile of these uh, potential fighters were more or less the same. In the, there was a recurrent pattern. So they were very young people, l- imagine from 20 to 30, but no studies, no education, no job coming from the biggest, uh, the, high, the places in Spain with the highest unemployment rates. So that means that people with no hope with no future. So if you are someone with no hope, no future, no perspective in your life, and someone offers one a reason to live for or to die for mm-hmm. uh, future and a sense of belonging that you don't have yeah. that makes you perfect victim for that perfect potential prey to join them mm-hmm. obviously i'm talking about most most of them were muslim mm-hmm. uh, some of them were not but the big majority were so you find a cause a reason you're giving you're giving people reason live now so that kind of potential uh, citizens are totally engaged and totally captivated by ISIS rhetoric yeah. so in that sense the uh, propaganda magazines offer this kind of message very powerful very beautiful so you will find a lot of pictures in which they are hugging each other in which they are just smiling having uh, you, c- you can sense this uh, the, the idea of family yeah. of group of community mm. so providing these people identities roots belonging, the kind of concepts that they're offering. 
So how does ISIS and I suppose other similar organizations with all the propaganda material, how do they counter the wealth of anti-ISIS propaganda out there? Do I mean, there, there's, there's a wealth of anti-ISIS propaganda out there, right? Anti-ISIS. Published by the West and... You know, and how, how does I- ISIS, in, 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 in their, in their re- recruitment material, how do, how do they counter that? As I said, uh, uh, ISIS propaganda magazines are very, very, very polarized. polarized. Right. So you can see the enemy very clearly and mm-hmm. the, the, the heroes. Enemies for ISIS is everybody who is not ISIS. Right. So don't think it's about, it's not a distinction between Muslims and Muslims. Right. You will yeah. find a lot of insults, mm. especially yeah. from number 13, as far as I remember from the week, there was a turning point. I don't know if there's someone else, uh, so the person behind uh, the, the editor, the main editor, principal editor, change or something. But even in the, in, the, in the vocabulary, in the lexical choices made were totally different. There is a turning point. Mm. That means that Shia Muslims are big enemy, yeah. Sufis are completely um, humiliated and insulted, mm. and definitely the West, you can imagine. Mm. Um, yeah. um, I, I, to be completely honest, I don't remember any personal attack on these counter elements or counter campaigns. Mm. I remember perfectly uh, uh, campaigns against, for instance, particular politicians. The most repeating one was Obama. Obama is the favorite, uh, was the favorite uh, ISIS enemy. Even you can find other politicians, senators, or uh, other European politicians, uh, or from other parts of the world. Obama is the most repeated. But as far as I remember, I don't uh, recall having uh, having seen any particular uh, attack to uh, any of these organizations in general. In general, uh, different things are institutions. Imagine United Nations. Imagine um, U.S. Congress. This is a different thing. Now, I don't know how effective this is in terms of dissuading people from joining ISIS, but uh, one message I've seen is that ISIS kills Muslims. Yes. Right? I, my, what I want to know is how does ISIS counter something like that Counts. in their messaging? And how, how, do they, how, how do they counter something like that in their own messaging, if they're looking to recruit more people? Like if, if, if somebody well, says ISIS kills Muslims, yeah, that's yeah, a pretty yeah. effective mm, message, I would imagine. Yeah, because they, they don't consider them Muslims. Right. They don't consider them Muslims. Okay. So for instance, Sufis are not Muslims for that. Right. They are traitors. Right. So they are not real Muslims. So ISIS is... No, I mean, I, mean in, I mean in the eyes of potential recruits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is because if you offer... Right. That uh, if you offer the message, if you send the message that what, what you are fighting for is the real content of Islam... Right. The rest... Of, of diversity within Islam is totally eradicated, should be totally eradicated. Because actually this is not being faithful to the original truth message of Islam. Mm. Then they are worse because they were born Muslims, but they are traitors to our cause. That's, that's the thing. It's not, they are not interested in Muslims per se. They are interested in their supporters, a particular right. caliphate right. that they have in mind, a particular mm. idea Mistake. that they have in mind. Um, the rest, for instance, me as a Christian, is. is Exactly as any uh, Sufi Muslim, mm. that would be. Or mm. if uh, f- I remember, for instance, some of the uh, pictures. No, I think they have a particular hatred towards Catholics and Christians, right? Obviously, yeah. I mean, you, you just see at the covers. Yeah, the, uh, the last number the one was the what a cross being destroyed. Yeah. Mm. So <laughs> they did a whole issue on that, the oh, breaking really? the cross. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't see you got. It's, it's very apocalyptic. Uh, the the yeah. message that you can find in Nadabik is, that's what I tell you that from a rhetoric point of view, it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Also, just the design, just the visual aspects are fascinating. The apocalyptic message 
that is offered in the big. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really, really powerful. Uh, but one, one of the issues is, is, is like breaking the cross. I mean, it's smashing a cross. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> there's not much more, I mean, room for interpretation for that kind of symbols, right? Yeah. Uh, so, um, and the Vatican, the Vatican is one of another symbol. Mm. Um, but think about what happened in Sri Lanka, for instance, they attacked the Christian churches, right? Yeah. Because obviously, Sri Lanka is not the West. But what are the most Western part that you can find here? One is religion, is a Christian churches. So th that's basically the idea. And tourists hotels. Tourists because actually come from the West mainly. Yeah. So even though obviously there are, uh, but that's, that's, that's the goal it, it has in mind because South Asia is not potentially for them a goal. No, because it's not the West. So you don't have any of the, of the system values that we have in the West. That's what they think. I mean, generally, obviously, they are Christian in Sri Lanka. I'm not saying that, but it's not a Christian country. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. So what are the points that you can attack the symbols on the West? So you attack the luxury hotels, and you can also attack the Christian churches. In Sri Lanka, I mean, you've studied, obviously studied the, dis the anti-Muslim discourse. Hmm. How has the discourse been among Muslims themselves in response to all the Islamophobia? In terms of the language I found, they were a minority in, the, in my data in my set of data. Again, it's my set of data. I cannot extrapolate that. You can just find very, very few. But if you, and they didn't respond aggressively. They tried mm. to, yeah. what can you do is I like, try to uh, apologize for what happened, yeah. A different thing is that, in, is it, we have to distinguish. One thing is the Digana Ampara clashes. Mm. That's a different thing. But they still there, they remain silent, most of them. Or at least they were not actively engaged in conversations online, in my data. And when they were, they tried just to... Uh, they didn't actively engage. So most of them were uh, either external commenters, right. not even living in Sri Lanka. So you can find a lot of Indians, for instance, okay. other Sri Lankans. But some of them were Muslims, but not the big majority. When the Muslims appeared uh, in the conversation or took part in the conversation, there was just basically to apologize or to try to justify or to try to uh, explain the situation they were living, how they were attacked, how they have been feeling oppressed by certain groups, etc. I've been studying propaganda, for instance, in the IRA. Mm -hmm. You can study the new ways of propaganda, of terrorism, right? <laughs> There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Obviously, I mean, it's that 20 years or in terms of technological advances, it, it means a lot, no? So yeah. ISIS, for instance, now there was no Photoshop. Now ISIS came wonderful things with Photoshop yeah. and people are much more trained in the technological um, tools. IRA posters, for instance, uh, were much more naive. <laughs> much more naive if you haven't looked at them. But also very powerful and straight. The messages were very straight. Mm. Comparing my work now with the LTT and the political murders, that's, what I, that's one of the reasons that what I didn't want to talk about radical and all these things. Right. Um, but this is a kind of different murals. I'm talking about pro-LTT mm. uh, murals. It's also a big difference. Although LTT was of the terrorist movements that in happened in the 20th century, probably the well, the most, the best documented. You can right. find a lot of uh, visual. Unfortunately, it makes sense because it was 26 year war. If you compare with contemporary terrorist movements such as IRA or you compare with the Basque country ETA, ETA is, 
is the, let's say, former ISIS. IDD got amazing, amazing infrastructure and uh, a very clear way of how to communicate things and the message and the public relations and everything was super, super clear. So you compare, it's very interesting to see how things have developed and also how things, how how advanced they were. Could you give us some examples? For instance, if you compare um, the propaganda of LTT propaganda, which relies a lot of semiotics on symbols, mm. yeah, the flowers, the, mm. the guns, but it, for instance, the murals are much more um, leader dependent. Mm -hmm. So in most of the murals of the LTT, you're going to find Prabhakara. Yeah. So like a personality cult. Yeah, this is not something that you're going to find in any other. Right. In any other terrorist movement, unless you go to South America. Right. That's why when he was killed, the end, the war was over, but not mm. before. Right. In IRA, you can find, uh, for instance, Bobby Sands, you can find Bobby Sands somewhere, but it's just like a martyr image of the movement because mm. he was on a hunger strike and he died, but not because he was the leader, let's mm. say. It's a different thing. Mm. It's, it's a kind of different concept, right? But the LTT is very much relying on the, on the, on Prabhakaran as the leader called to the leader, as you see, mm. leader called personality relevant and definitely very outstanding. Mm. That is very interesting and it tells a lot about the whole movement. Mm. Uh, the metaphors that you are used, for instance, in their discourse, so he's called shepherd many times, like in a kind of messier, messianic message. Mm -hmm. And um, this is not something you can find in other terrorist movements at the same time, happening uh, in right. other parts of the world, but happening, let's say, in the 80s, 90s, no. Very interesting, I'm still collecting the data and I will study that um, following years I will continue with so it. this study. is very unique to the LTTE is what yeah. you're saying. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Not unique, no, I wouldn't say unique, but uh, probably you will find others uh, movements in South America like this. Right. But if you compare with other terrorist movements happening at, uh, at the same the time in other parts of the world. Contemporary, mm. okay, right. Yeah. No, you are mm -hmm. not. You are not. It's like Che Guevara. It's like uh, mm. you take a figure yeah. as the leader of your cause, of the, f the fight, and this is something like a very unique. Have you noticed that Che Guevara is quite popular in Sri Lanka as well? Like you, you see graffiti yes. and <laughs> plenty. <laughs> His name it's is more everywhere. popular. I always say like on the che back Guevara, of three wheelers. Che Guevara is more popular. I tell my friends like Che Guevara is more popular here than in Cuba and Argentina, <laughs> like uh, his own <laughs> his own country. Because definitely it's a kind of. Um, Blind faith on him, no? Yeah. <laughs> I think people don't know exactly <laughs> the history of Che Guevara, so they took it as like an icon. Right. But yeah, there's a lot of romanticization uh, yes. involved. Yes, uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, so I think it's worth investigating how he became such an icon in Sri Lanka of all True, but, but as far as I know, you, I mean, to be completely honest, this is something that uh, some people have told me, so, but I haven't checked. Hmm. Uh, he visited Sri Lanka, no? Yeah, he did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he got interviewed with the hmm. JVP leaders, no? I think, yeah, yeah. Javier met him, right? Uh, yeah. And actually, the JVP sure. leader, okay. the pictures I saw of him, he got the same uh, bonnet, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like he wanted to be. Yeah. Yes. So, it's, it's so there are a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of points just to point right. out what the Che Guevara became. Plus, Che Guevara became a popular culture icon. Mm. Yeah. Nobody knows. <laughs> Why and um, even in the West to oh some yeah, extent, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, like there are Che Guevara t shirts, no, as much mobs. as here, no. Huh? Oh, no, sorry, I mean, if you are down and rebel and ignorant, yes, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Uh, then I think you lots can of white kids wearing <laughs> Che Guevara t shirts, yeah, but kids. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're an adult, I, I, you have a study. I used to have a poster of Che Guevara on my phone. <laughs> Do you have a poster? I used to like 10 years ago. <laughs> 
We are not. <laughs> there we go. Yes. <laughs> he was young and innocent. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but no. Th- that was because I read so many books and stories about you know how he was this. Saint no, no, like no. I, I understand. <laughs> I mean, it depends. It yeah. depends. Yeah. If you just read part of the story, like oh, he was a rebel fighting for the poor. Yeah. He wanted social justice, mm. and then say this is my hero. It's a no. It's a modern Robin Hood. No, mm. um, that's cool. Um, then if you read other things about him, then might uh, you disagree or m- even me f- might feel disappointed about him. There are other people who still continue like uh, yeah. devoting him, right? Mm. That depends. But it's true that, uh, I mean, most of the of the people who would just wear Che Guevara's T-shirt, they have no clue about that, so they would <laughs> <even> <laughs> did. Probably the three-wheelers, some of them might not even know, right? Yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, they find he's an attractive figure, no? Right. Yeah, <laughs> someone to idolize this exactly yeah, distant figure. Yeah, thing, basically yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So, but he became a popular culture element, a popular culture icon. Yeah. No, and so these days, in Spain, you can find, but never in a car or something like that. So, I mean, right. this is the, here is much more. It's more pronounced, right? Like yeah. on the back of three wheelers. It's much more. This devotion. Shigeru wants you to rebel. It's a popular <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that the first time I saw that, <laughs> I was like, wow, <laughs> this is something, something <laughs> serious now. But yeah, it depends. It if you feel oppressed, you feel like you belong to a minority, and this is a symbol that for that fought for the oppressed. Period. Right. You don't go into any right. deeper mm. aspects. So this is that you take it as your. So he died down, he was good looking, you would never see someone like in a decrepit state be becoming an idol. So a lot of uh, romanticized, as you say, uh, romantic aspects around him. Like it's almost as if he took what should have been Rohan Vijayavira's place in people's imagination, right? Mm, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. That's what I was thinking, that's why he told you that he came here, he got an interview with certain people, so yeah. we could have been like that. After, I remember some years ago, like if you remember, you remember what happened in Chiapas with uh, Comandante Marcos. You remember that, oh, Comandante Marcos took all these indigenous people from Chiapas, they were just uh, traveling uh, in Mexico on, uh, around the jungle. Mm. They became a kind of a new modern Che Guevara. Mm. Comandante Marcos never showed his face, so okay. he was always having here like a small handkerchief, a tissue mm. here covering his face. He became also a romantic. For all these rebels, people who are, you know, social rebels in nature, mm. he became the new, the new uh, model. So he was fighting for the indigenous people. Mm. So. And actually, as far as, as far as I remember, he mentioned Che Guevara also as an idol and some model to follow. So, getting back to the the, the ethnic conflict, uh, have you had a chance to look at any of the literature, as in fiction or poetry, around around the war? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. From I mean, both sides. From both sides, I mean, I've been reading a lot of books, fiction novels. Yeah. Around uh, about the war, yeah, I've been. A last book I read that I found absolutely amazing is called A Long Watch. Okay. Uh, I haven't read that. It's wonderful. It's about ship captain. As far as I remember, I don't know exactly remember the, the rank, but it was a member of the Navy, mm. Sri, right. Singala, Sri Lankan mm. Navy. He was a Singala Buddhist um, citizen. He was captured by the Tamil Tigers. Oh, right. Uh, this is uh, Sunila's book, right? Oh, yeah. I, I still get, didn't get a chance to read it yet. It is fantastic. Yeah, it so is fantastic. It's very engaging, and it, made you th- it makes you think a lot of things. It is 
very, very uh, food for thought. It's thought-provoking. It gives you a lot of food for thought to think about. Actually, the protagonist is still alive. He should be like maybe 65 years old. This is about that uh, major general who was captured by the LTT and uh, was kept alive for eight years. So you can feel how it's not that he felt this Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) but um, how you can when you are eight years Mm. living in situations, how you can get closer to some people. Some you know you try to you you don't. And that's the best thing that it can happen to you. You don't lose your humanity somehow, right? But it's so difficult in those circumstances, no? But to me, it was more striking when he was talking about when he was released uh, in exchange, in a government-organized exchange by some other political prisoners from the LTD, how society rejected him. Singhala society? That was the last part of the book, which, which was, was the one that most struck, struck me, yeah, actually. How um, he was not a hero, but he yeah. was under suspicions all the time, mm. and uh, he was fired from his work, and uh, denied promotions, and then fired, and how have he had to reinvent himself and try to justify that right. he was not one of them, as some people wanted to sell the story that actually he was a supporter. Mm-hmm. It was really like really really uh, made me think deeply about so many things also apart from the personal levels how how your your own children are totally strangers to you and you are to them because you have not been there in for eight years which are essential in their lives no uh, how to reconnect again with the former life but also to me it's like after being ca- in captivated and uh, pre- imprisoned uh, or taken as a as a hostage eight years then you're still under suspicion and uh, that you have to justify yeah. yourself and how hard, how harsh that should be. For anyone interested, this is a book by Sunil Agalapati, which by all accounts is an excellent read. It is, to me it is. The Song of the Sun God was also a wonderful read for me. Right. Uh, this Tamil family, the saga, mm. and you can see from uh, pre-riots, how was life here with all the burgers and all these col- um, um, elite from mm-hmm. Colombo, then what happened afterward, that how they have to adapt and start a new life in the diaspora in Australia. So there was actually a lot of um, uh, wonderful aspects that uh, was actually a fascinating read, really, really enjoyable read. I'm going to start another one. So yes, I've been reading uh, fiction, right. well, except The uh, Long Watch, okay. which is not fiction. But um, yes, I've been reading uh, fiction about the world in Sri Lanka. Great. One final question, I suppose. Uh, okay, what is the cutting edge of, or, or say, even the future of linguistics research? <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is I, th- I think uh, like you know with, with changing technology and things like that. But yeah, that's it. That's it. This is the future <laughs> of, right. of linguistics, definitely. Um, uh, what technology can bring into linguistics is going to be definitely key. Um, you got here some an expert on artificial intelligence, yep. no? And so computational linguistics. Computational linguistics, yeah. yes. So they are designing a lot of, um, of tools that can ease uh, linguistic research. That means that we are now, when we talk about data, we, you can go to corpora of a corpus with uh, one billion words. Um, so whenever I go to a conference, attend a conference, there is someone usually from Germany. So we compiled a corpus of one billion words. <laughs> and then another one from another country, usually USA. We compiled a, com- compiled a corpora, uh, corpus of three billion words. So it's like 
bigger <laughs> and bigger. So whenever, <laughs> whenever I hear these people talking, I always think about, oh, of people who own really big houses. Mm. But who cleans these houses? <laughs> <laughs> this is always thing like uh, when I think about corporate so big, I always think, but who is going to analyze this data? Because I mean, yeah, but now you, you need the linguist to analyze, right? I always tell my students in corporate linguistics, size doesn't matter because <laughs> 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 not because they get obsessed with the sizes. Okay. Uh, and it depends on what kind of a structure they're looking at. Right. If it's a frequent structure, you don't need that big data. Obviously, if it's, if it's an infrequent structure, you need a big corpora, big corpus, so that you, know, you have more examples, because otherwise you don't have. But uh, don't get obsessed. <laughs> that is, that's what I try to. Sometimes it's enough, but um, we lost control about uh, big, big data. No? Uh, but definitely, uh, future of linguistics is going to be, is already, um, depending so much on these um, linguistic tools that are developed by computational linguists. Um, think, for instance, of forensic linguistics and how we the, the, the whole discipline has improved. So um, it has helped helping the police a lot. Oh, mm. the project on ISIS I talk about. Mm. We are going to gi we give, we give the ling uh, computational linguists all the data so they can develop an algorithm to, pr to try to predict right. this kind of discourse, right? right. In forensic linguistics, for instance, uh, speech voice recognition programs can help police to detect on the phone mm. the area and the accent very mm. clearly. From imagine drug dealers is one of the typical examples that they use this kind of thing. So when they tap the phone of some potential drug dealers, they can detect who is this person because of the accent. So phoneticians have a lot of things to do in that. Or, um, yeah, or. Imagine, for instance, suicide notes. So the pattern is easily recognizable. If actually it was not, it's very easy to detect if uh, the person himself or herself wrote the letter or someone else wrote it for them. Or, I don't know, uh, many, many cases. So um, many, many other examples of this uh, sort. So definitely future of linguistics relies on computers. <laughs> Okay. Realize on computer already it is already. I mean, um, I remember a professor I got at the faculty when he he used to tell us. So when I wrote my PhD, there were no computers. So in a uh, shoebox, he got amount of cards with the verbs and the behavior. Now you got it with a file. In two seconds, you got the information you want. The compilation of data and analysis. Obviously, you spend the same amount of time analyzing the data. But the, in terms of collecting the data you need, it is not compatible. So I mean, actually, computers was a kind of <laughs> blessing <laughs> for linguists uh, because they make our uh, task way, way more easier. So for instance, when you analyze uh, YouTube comments or um, images is a different thing. Images is a different thing. But uh, in terms of language, you can write a script and you got all the data from Twitter. And But like in mm. one minute, you can all the data. So imagine uh, the amount of time that you save. Cool. All right. So thank you very much, Carmen, for joining us. <laughs> well, well thanks to you. Thanks to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, then uh, this is us signing off. Uh, catch cool. us. Catch you guys on the next episode. Yeah. See Peace. Ya. Bye.